This is Live from Ukraine, a conversation with Ukrainian voices taped live on Twitter Spaces. To join future audiences, follow me at Benjamin Wittes. Welcome to Live from Ukraine, a highly experimental podcast from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. I'm Benjamin Wittes. And over the past couple of months, uh, both in my capacity as Lawfare's editor-in-chief and in my capacity shared by many of you, I'm sure, as a horrified observer of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I've had a lot of questions about Ukraine. We've all grown up, at least those of us in the West have grown up with a lot of myths about the country, its people, and its civic and cultural life, particularly in relation to Russia. But unlike a lot of you, uh, probably anyway, I have been privileged to spend a lot of time over the last couple months talking to Ukrainians. Uh, These conversations have completely blown me away. And uh, I have learned just an inordinate amount from them uh, and unlearned a huge amount of what I thought I knew. And the other day I decided uh, that I needed to make a regular practice of this uh, category of conversations in my life because this issue is not going away and I would be better off being better informed than less informed. And I also uh, decided uh, to try to turn those conversations outward a little bit, uh, uh, learning from the from Ukrainians about their perspective and understanding of the war in a fashion that lets others participate and lets others listen uh, and allows people to be engaged in that conversation, both in an active way uh, in uh, in asking questions themselves, but also just uh, from a podcast point of view, just listening in. So that is uh, the this podcast. I am recording it on Twitter Spaces at the cost of some audio quality, I'm sure, in order to facilitate that conversation. The way each episode will work is that I will introduce the guest, have the guest introduce uh, herself or himself in some cases uh, and um, talk to the guest for 20-25 minutes. Then I will bring the audience in for questions. Um, uh, For those of you who are joining by podcast, um, uh, please uh, join the live conversation next time. I will try to do these conversations as regularly as I can, but I'm making no promises because it has uh, all dependent on guest availability and the ability to schedule times across time differences. So with that, uh, let me introduce Bahdana Neborak, who is uh, a journalist. Uh, She is the editor-in-chief of the Ukrainians, about which we will talk in a moment. Uh, She is also a cultural manager and a podcaster. uh, And she's joining me from the Carpathians in Western Ukraine. Uh, Bogdana, thanks for joining us and welcome to Live from Ukraine. Uh, Hi, Benjamin, and uh, greetings to all uh, our audience, and uh, thanks for having me in uh, your podcast. So uh, let's start with uh, the Ukrainians. What is it and what does it do? Oh, uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, The Ukrainians media is uh, the media which was launched uh, after the Revolution of Dignity uh, in uh, 2013-2014. Uh, First of all, it was a media which was launched by uh, the friends uh, who were students then uh, and uh, our today's CEO, Taras Prokopeshin, for example, he studied sociology in the Lviv University. And um, all those folks, uh, they understood that uh, there is a demand uh, of um, long-form conversation. 
and the media started from the long interviews uh, with uh, very famous uh, people who were all Ukrainians and there were for example uh, star writers but also uh, star politicians or historians and so on uh, with whom we were speaking uh, about their life about their work but uh, also about, um, for example, uh, what do they like to do uh, day by day or um, what do they like to eat or uh, how did they spend their childhood uh, and so on. Uh, but uh, since then, uh, the years passed and the media grew uh, and uh, for now we have um, uh, I dare say, a set of medias uh, in this infrastructure. And first of all, it is the Ukrainians, it is uh, the interview media, but also we have uh, the reporters, it is the uh, media of literary reportage. Uh, also, we have the Ukrainians radio where we have a lot of podcasts uh, and uh, also we have the Ukrainian storytelling studio uh, where we write books and uh, have uh, different multimedia projects. Uh, what is the main in our work is um, the human and the individual in the center of everything because we really love telling uh, the people's stories and um, uh, I want to say that even the medium is not the most important for us. Uh, the story of a person is the most important thing for us. And uh, even if we speak about, I don't know, historical events uh, or uh, uh, the process of reforms or something like that, uh, we always do that with the means of a story. Um, so uh, it is like that. And is it principally in uh, Ukrainian or principally in English or principally in Russian? Uh, we started uh, only in Ukrainian. We do not write in Russian, uh, but uh, for now we translate uh, some of our texts into English uh, and some of our special projects especially. For example, we had a really big special project dedicated to the uh, 30 years of Ukrainian independence and uh, we uh, did it from the very beginning in Ukrainian but also in English because we wanted a uh, broader audience to read that. Uh, but also for now we have a lot of literary reportages uh, from the from war uh, and uh, some of them are already translated into English uh, because we feel that uh, these uh, people's stories are um, something that uh, touch the foreigners and we just want to share them uh, from here, from the ground of Ukraine. And you also <clears throat> do work as what you call a cultural manager. What what does that mean? What do, what does that work involve? Uh, yeah, um, I studied law. I graduated from a law school, uh, and I really like my education. Uh, but uh, I always wanted to work with Ukrainian culture. Uh, I'm an avid reader, uh, and. Uh, I was like that as a kid, but uh, I'm still uh, a person who always carries a book uh, with herself. And I always just wanted uh, to write about Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian literature. And uh, when I graduated from uh, my university, I understood that uh, I want uh, to use some mechanism that I got uh, there in, uh, at my university just to... Uh, tell about Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian culture uh, for the broader audience. And uh, when I say that I am a culture manager, I mean really different things because um, uh, I did really different projects. Um, for example, uh, I used to work for a state-run agency which is called the Ukrainian Book Institute. It is the agency under the Ministry of Culture of Ukraine, uh, which is responsible uh, for different stuff connected with books and literature. But uh, when I was working there, I worked at the literary translation department. Uh, I liked that department and it was responsible uh, for the promotion of Ukrainian literature abroad. And it was the work of my dream because I had a chance to tell uh, on the one hand about my contemporaries uh, whom I like, uh, whom I listen to, uh, but also I was able uh, to speak, for example, about the literature of Ukrainian modernism, which is uh, totally unknown, uh, not only in the West, but 
um, it is mostly unknown abroad because it was uh, forbidden for publication and uh, it was just uh, not translated into foreign languages. Uh, so uh, I was working with different projects which uh, were highlighting this literature. Uh, but um, also uh, I work with literary fairs where we might have uh, a set of uh, conversations about uh, some cultural stuff, but uh, also I organize the readings and uh, uh, for example, uh, there is a project of my dream, uh, which I was very close to launch uh, before the full-scale invasion started, but I hope that we will uh, make it possible this year. It is uh, the project dedicated to the nonlinear history of Ukrainian literature. And uh, let me tell just a couple words about it. Uh, I um, imagine it like that. Uh, we take the star contemporary Ukrainian authors and uh, ask them uh, to uh, um, deliver the lectures about uh, their favorite Ukrainian uh, authors. But I mean that, for example, a contemporary star, Serhii Zhadan, uh, gives a lecture about the uh, poetry of Ukrainian futurism, because when he was studying at his university, he wrote a PhD dedicated to this period. And uh, the only thing that I found out as a cultural manager, not the only, but maybe the most important for me is that the best way to present one's culture is to do that with passion. And I just want to um, use this approach with uh, every of my projects and especially about the projects dedicated to culture because I just don't believe that uh, you may just uh, read encyclopedia about a, a culture and uh, start loving it. But when you uh, listen to different stories from uh, the specific culture, uh, you mm, might get a very personal connection to it. And uh, I think that this way of uh, opening a, a culture through a passion is something that works really well. So talk to me about your experience during the war or during the uh, full-scale invasion or the special military operation, uh, whatever your preferred uh, terminology is. Uh, uh, at a personal level, what happened to you when the Russians invaded and where have you spent the conflict? Uh, yeah, of course, I prefer calling that a war because it's just a war, uh, not a special military operation. But I think that uh, now we live in the world of MAMS and probably uh, this metaphor of uh, special operation became even a MAM, which is used against uh, Russia and Russian propaganda. Yeah, uh, I, was, but... I, was, I was saying it ironically. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Um, mm, my work was influenced um, after 2014 uh, because I graduated from my university in 2016. And uh, when I started working uh, for the Ukrainian Book Institute, uh, of course, we had a kind of strict uh, state politics uh, about the uh, cooperation with uh, Russians uh, or uh, about the narratives we are trying to spread about Ukraine. Uh, but um, the situation changed uh, just uh, hugely after the uh, February 24th. Uh, when the full-scale invasion started. Uh, I was in Kyiv. Uh, I normally live in Kyiv and I work there. I love the city very much. And uh, in the morning I uh, woke up uh, at uh, seven o'clock because uh, I live in the historical district of Podil. It is near uh, my alma mater university, Kyiv Mohela Academy, and it is um, uh, really, uh, Podil uh, means uh, something uh, that is not high. And we didn't hear it uh, there, the explosions by ourselves. Uh, but uh, first thing that I saw when I switched off the um, sleep mode of my phone uh, were the um, uh, notifications from the New York Times. And uh, they missed phone calls from my mother, uh, who lives in Lviv. And uh, of course, she wanted to warn me that uh, war started. Uh, and um, it is very easy to say that uh, the war or the full-scale invasion started. Uh, but uh, when you are in this situation, 
uh, you just uh, don't uh, don't understand uh, how you should behave uh, because um, there are not uh, any ready patterns uh, for you to behave. Uh, but uh, I will just briefly uh, outline my first day. Um, I just tried to make a breakfast and uh, to understand uh, what can I do uh, for now. And uh, together with my boyfriend, we had a coffee and uh, we just decided uh, to make two things. First of all, uh, to check uh, our uh, favorite coffee shop. It is called the World of Coffee, Svitkava. If you come to Kiev, you just uh, need to go there. But um, we went there and uh, uh, it was opened. Uh, we had the coffee and chatted with baristas. And then we understood that if we decide to uh, leave the city, um, we need uh, to do something with uh, our library. Uh, we had quite a big library uh, at our place and we just wanted to make it uh, as safe as possible. And we went to the post office to buy the big boxes uh, to um, cover our books in those boxes because we just didn't know what to expect. And for example, if we stayed somewhere else, for example, in Western Ukraine, we just wanted to know that probably somehow we can get those books because not all... Uh, it's just our library, you know, when I uh, when I'm working now and uh, I just feel uh, like I'm handless or I don't know, headless uh, without my library. But that was our first day. And in the late evening, uh, we uh, left Kyiv uh, on train and we decided to spend some time in Lviv in Western Ukraine, uh, where uh, I'm from, where I uh, lived uh, till my 20s. Uh, and we understood that uh, it was uh, just adequate uh, way to uh, work from there. And uh, to um, uh, we just felt uh, that uh, we can uh, help better uh, from Lviv. And that was uh, the thing that uh, we did. And have you been back to Kiev since, uh, or have you been uh, based in the West uh, since the war began? Yes, I was based uh, in the West, uh, but for now I'm thinking of uh, coming back to Kiev uh, because it is not uh, safe, uh, but it looks like uh, people uh, can get uh, back to the city. Uh, unfortunately, there are still uh, many risks uh, of uh, rocket attacks, uh, but uh, uh, I just need that uh, for my work. Uh, so uh, I think that in the end of the month, I will try to come back to Kiev. So uh, I read an interview with you recently uh, about Russian liberals in which you were uh, very tough on uh, uh, anti-Putin Russian liberals uh, with respect to Ukraine. And I'm interested in uh, hearing from you about that. Uh, a lot of people in the West think of uh, anti-Putin Russians as sort of natural allies for Ukrainians I hear a lot of resistance to that from Ukrainians. Uh, where does that friction come from and why are you suspicious of, uh, of liberal Russians who purport to oppose the war or oppose uh, Vladimir Putin? Uh, yeah. I think that uh, the situation differs uh, if we speak about Ukrainians uh, who are asked to cooperate with uh, liberal Russians and if we speak about, uh, um, I dare say, uh, the West that uh, tries to cooperate with uh, liberal Russians. Uh, and uh, it is uh, different uh, because uh, when uh, Ukrainians... Um, I will say a different way. Um, uh, the best way for me to speak about the uh, Russian liberals is uh, to speak about the uh, Russian writers and uh, preferably contemporary Ukrainian writers. Um, uh, contemporary Russian writers. Uh, I mean uh, that uh, unfortunately uh, uh, they have a very uh, imperial and uh, colonial uh, point of view uh, to Ukraine. And uh, even uh, if we take really a star uh, Russian liberal writers, like, for example, Ludmila Ulitskaya, 
who is a widely known uh, novelist and uh, who is said to be uh, shortlisted for the Nobel Prize in Literature for some years. Um, when she gives an interview after 2014, uh, she tells that the situation with the annexation of Crimea is uh, not uh, something obvious to her. Uh, when Ukrainian looks at the situation of Crimea, uh, he or she um, sees a very obvious thing, and I mean that uh, a person... Just to be clear yeah. for those uh, listeners who may not know this history, Crimea was part of Ukraine, or is part of Ukraine, uh, and was occupied and annexed by Russia in 2014. Uh, and now Russia, uh, among other things, uh, Crimea is one of the bases from which it is launched uh, at least some of the southern uh, uh, operations. Uh, yeah, definitely. And uh, uh, for any uh, person of a sound mind, uh, it is obvious uh, that uh, one country uh, cannot just... Uh, come to another country and uh, just uh, occupy a part of the territory. Uh, but uh, uh, for uh, um, Ludmila Ulitska, the things are not just obvious. And a lot of uh, people, uh, a lot of artists, a lot of writers, uh, unfortunately, they uh, served uh, for Russian politics that we are witnessing today. And uh, there is also another important distinction uh, that uh, a lot of people uh, tell they're uh, against Putin, uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that they are against uh, war uh, that is uh, taking place here in Ukraine, or that uh, they are, for example, against Russian liberal, uh, Russian imperialism. And that is the point because uh, Ukrainians know that uh, just for centuries. And um, let me tell uh, you my personal story. Uh, my uh, godfather was a prisoner uh, of the uh, Soviet camps uh, for six years. And then he spent uh, three years in very deep Russia uh, just because he wanted to uh, write in Ukrainian and he wasn't a social realist. Uh, if you tell uh, that uh, to any modernist uh, writer from the US, uh, I think that a person will be surprised. Like, uh, just imagine that you are an American writer and uh, you are imprisoned because you want to write in English. Um, but uh, it looks like that. It is very ridiculous, but a lot of people uh, face that. And uh, a lot of families have uh, the same personal stories in their historical memories and in their collective memories. And I just remember myself as a child when I was told that my godfather uh, was a prisoner, but um, it, somehow it was a question of honor and it was uh, a question of pride. And uh, uh, that's why uh, Ukrainians uh, just uh, don't believe in uh, this matter that uh, Russian liberals uh, work uh, for Ukrainian independence in this way. And what I feel when I follow uh, the uh, recent news from uh, Russian uh, liberal uh, politicians, writers or journalists is um, that I uh, feel uh, they're trying to make an arc of a true Russia. A lot of uh, people probably uh, saw the initiative of uh, Russian writer Boris Akunin, uh, who launched a website which is called True Russia. And uh, it is uh, the very interesting thing to my mind, because uh, they are trying to persuade us, uh, all of us, that uh, the Putin's Russia is not true, uh, but there is true Russia. And it consists, for example, of uh, liberal Russian writers, of uh, Russian ballet, of uh, uh, Russian uh, classical music or classical theater. Uh, I'm not trying to tell uh, that uh, Russian classical uh, culture is not worth uh, reading or following, uh, but uh, Ukrainians uh, just want uh, justice to be served. And I mean, Ukrainians want uh, all this culture uh, to be 
re-watched, re-read uh, or re-listened uh, with uh, this imperial idea inside of this culture. And uh, I think that it is something that uh, might be possible after the war comes to an end and uh, the uh, reparations of Russia will be in force. Uh, because we see how it uh, was enforced, uh, for example, uh, to the culture of uh, Great Britain or France and how it influenced those cultures in a really beautiful way. And I believe that if uh, Russian culture is decolonized and deimperialized, uh, it uh, becomes uh, even stronger. But unfortunately, uh, for now, we uh, don't uh, hear and don't see such intentions. So I you you tweeted when when we uh, when I announced the show you tweeted that we would uh, we might talk about uh, what people should be reading and listening to and watching uh, and I was tantalized by that question uh, and I so I just want to pose it to you directly if you had uh, one thing for people in particularly. Uh, for people in the West uh, to uh, watch, listen to, and read uh, uh, to get a sense of modern Ukrainian culture, uh, what would you have them watch, listen to, and read? <laughs> Benjamin, this is really difficult to uh, take only one thing, but, but then, then do try. more than one. <laughs> I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I, I, I think we have we have partly because of something you alluded to earlier that so little uh, modern Ukrainian writing is in translation. Uh, we have very little sense in of uh, of what uh, what modern Ukrainian culture is, and we have a quite distorted sense of it because of. Uh, frankly, the influence of uh, imperial Russian culture. So, uh, for example, you know, when I studied Russian in in college, I really had was taught that Ukrainian was just a dialect. I had no. This was by American professors. You know, I had no sense of the distinction of the language. Uh, um, I had no sense that it had a separate literature. Uh, these are things that um, uh, I think the the imperial, the cultural imperialism has actually been very successful in transmitting uh, to the West. And so I'm I'm just interested in in what you would want people to experience culturally by way of of understanding that there is actually a, a highly distinct Ukrainian national culture. Uh, yeah, I will start. Uh, uh, you remembered me about the, those uh, Ghostbusters, and uh, I thought that uh, we all uh, need uh, Ghostbusters uh, for the small languages or small cultures, uh, because uh, you told about uh, those uh, things that were told uh, by your professor that Ukrainian language is a dialect. But it is a part of Soviet propaganda, and uh, for the first time, uh, this myth uh, was produced uh, by Maxim Gorky. And Maxim Gorky is uh, called a father of social realism, and uh, Joseph Stalin uh, loved Maxim Gorky. Uh, but of course, uh, those myths are very, very powerful. Mm. I will uh, recommend something from the uh, freshest, uh, from the contemporary uh, Ukrainian culture. And um, one of the best known uh, Ukrainian authors uh, today is uh, Sergei Zhadan. Uh, he is from Kharkiv. It is uh, the east of Ukraine and it was uh, very heavily uh, bombed uh, by Russia uh, within uh, this month. Uh, and uh, Jadan is a very interesting uh, writer uh, because uh, he's very, very popular uh, in Ukraine. I mean that uh, he can find uh, that very special language uh, which can be 
understood and uh, perceived uh, by very different people. Um, a lot of his works uh, are already been translated into English, uh, but let me um, recommend you his uh, novel uh, Voroshilovgrad. I really like the novel, and uh, Voroshilovgrad is a historical name of uh, Luhansk. Uh, Luhansk uh, is a city occupied uh, by uh, Russia, and uh, it is very important uh, city in the Ukrainian history because also it is the area which in uh, Cossack times uh, was called the wild field. It was the territory of freedom. And uh, it is a novel uh, about a rather young man uh, who needs to come uh, to his uh, native small city uh, to uh, save the oil station of his uh, brother. Uh, we don't see his brother in the novel uh, still. We understand that his brother just uh, is a source of problems to this uh, character. Uh, but uh, um, the main idea which uh, we find in Voroshilovgrad is uh, that uh, even if your history is uh, quite complicated, and even if the history of your land is quite complicated, uh, you still uh, need to... Uh, you, you just not even need, but uh, you have the inner love to your land. And uh, there is a way uh, to find uh, how to go on and uh, how to make uh, your life there um, more comfortable, uh, but filled uh, with uh, more love. And it is uh, just a very interesting, uh, like a... Uh, uh, in some way a road movie and in some way it is just a big adventurous novel. Um, also, I uh, recommend uh, the poetry collection by Jadan, which was published in Yale University Press, which is called What We Live For, What We Die For. It is a selection of his poetic works, but it is just outstandingly translated by Virlana Tkachin Wanderfips. Uh, if we speak about uh, contemporary Ukrainian music, uh, I always recommend uh, Dacha Bracha because uh, they just uh, let one uh, feel the power of the Ukrainian tradition, but also um, the contemporary influences uh, that music has. Uh, but uh, I also recommend you Deh Daughters, uh, who have a lot of uh, compositions and performances uh, made on the contemporary Ukrainian poetry. And uh, if you listen to them, uh, you just uh, feel that uh, power of Ukrainian poetry. And uh, just believe me that you will try to find the translations uh, of that. And yeah. Wow. Thank you. Um, all right. So we are going to go to audience questions, which means this is the part where y'all uh, uh, get over your shyness and somebody has to be the first. Uh, in the meantime, before I forget, Bogdana, um, how can people support the Ukrainians um, uh, and the work that you do? Uh, yeah, uh, you may find us on Patreon if you like supporting uh, the media on Patreon, but you can also go to our website and uh, you just find it in the header of my profile. There is uh, the Ukrainians button and then uh, you will find uh, the address of the website and there you will find our membership. And I just advise everybody our membership because we have uh, a huge society of our readers and of our supporters and uh, all those people are mostly very proactive Ukrainian citizens from all around the world but we also host a, a lot of events some of them are online of course most of them are in Ukrainian language but maybe you started learning Ukrainian and for example I host a book club of the Ukrainians and uh, since the war started uh, we decided to read the books we consider to be anti-totalitarian books and uh, those are very very different books of fiction and non-fiction so if you decide to get our membership i just encourage you so you can do that at the ukrainians website or uh on the patreon page uh uh which uh uh you all know how to do um 
All right. Still waiting for somebody to break the ice here because uh, it's not that intimidating, guys. I know like you're here because you have questions. So, uh, you know, show up and ask them. Um, Tell me, uh, how has, I assume attention to your work has increased dramatically since uh, February 24th. What has been the, the impact of the war on what you do? Uh, yeah. Uh, in the beginning, uh, it was just uh, very difficult uh, to find out uh, what else uh, you can do except of uh, quality news. Uh, but uh, time passes and uh, everybody understands uh, that uh, except of news, uh, people need uh, stories and uh, people need reportages and interviews and even podcasts. And uh, probably the ice-breaking moment was uh, when our uh, reporters team um, uh, began uh, making uh, the uh, reports uh, from the uh, from Kiev, from Kiev suburbs, uh, from the east, uh, from the south of Ukraine. Uh, then uh, we went on with our interviews because we felt that our audience is ready for that, but also we as creators are ready for that. And for me, uh, probably one of the most important points was uh, when I felt that we may run a podcast. Uh, we decided to make a new podcast dedicated uh, to uh, Ukrainian culture and uh, to questions that arise just uh, now. Uh, it is a podcast I do with my friend who is a curator of uh, art projects and she also works uh, with literature. And, uh, and what's we understand- it called? Uh, it is, um, yeah, <laughs> it, it is a thing uh, because it is called uh, For Now uh, Without a Name. Uh, we understood uh, that we may uh, take a nice name, but uh, when we are speaking about uh, Ukrainian culture and how it changes and how changes its perception in the world, uh, it is just difficult uh, to uh, take uh, the word which uh, will be really true. And we decided uh, not uh, to look uh, for a good brand, but just to leave it without a name. And uh, of course, we will find a name for our podcast about culture. But maybe the first season or the first two seasons will be without a name and it is even uh, seen at uh, our cover. Uh, So uh, when we felt that we may run a new podcast and speak about Ukrainian culture in connections uh, with the events that we face, uh, we uh, like felt uh, that uh, for now we may uh, do more than we did in the very beginning in February or in early March. And uh, it was uh, the same probably for the whole media. We have a question from Ken. Uh, Ken, what's on your mind? Yes, uh, good morning. Um I guess my question is um, uh, uh, how pessimistic do you think we should be uh, for uh, regarding the prospect of a liberal democratic Russia within, say, the next 30 years? Um, is Russia simply doomed for historical con- you know, contingent reasons to always be governed by an authoritarian uh, government? Uh, Thanks, Ken. Um, I think that we all uh, need to be very attentive and uh, careful. And uh, I cannot say uh, when will we be less attentive, like in 30 years or in 10 years or maybe in 50 years. Uh, But we just understand that uh, there are uh, situations that influence the whole society. And, uh, for example, uh, the uh, USSR uh, was uh, the political situation that influenced badly the Russian elites. And it is uh, beautifully depicted by Peter Pomerantsev in uh, his uh, book uh, uh, from Russia, uh, which is called um, Everything is Possible. 
and uh, he wrote uh, he writes uh, there about uh, those uh, russian liberals and uh, how they uh, change uh, their minds uh, what can I advise is only attentiveness and uh, good faith and belief still. Ev, come on, the floor is yours. Thanks, Ben. Um, thank you very much, Barhana. Uh, it, it, it's very, your work is super fascinating, really, congratulations. Um, I was wondering, actually, if you add um, a myth to debunk about Ukrainian, uh, something that... Um, bothers you that you feel like westerners thinks about your country or your people and you would like to debunk is there something that you want to share with us westerners about your people that uh, a false conception about your, your people and your country uh yeah thanks sir mm, i will try to answer uh generally and uh, i think that uh, the worst way about uh, ukraine is uh, that we face this uh, colonial approach to ukraine not only from uh, russians but uh, uh, from a lot of people from another countries and let me give you a small example uh, in Ukraine, uh, we don't have the nobel laureates uh, uh, in literature and uh, usually a lot of uh, uh, foreigners with whom I work, even in cultural sphere, uh, don't know enough about uh, Ukrainian poetry. Uh, usually a lot of people uh, know uh, about the Russian Silver Age modernism, but uh, they don't know about uh, Ukrainian poetry. And it is not a problem uh, of uh, Ukrainian literature, but it is a problem of perception. It is uh, the idea that uh, one uh, who um, knew nothing about, uh, in this example, uh, Ukrainian poetry must admit uh, that uh, the 40 million people has a great tradition of literacy. And uh, then uh, to um, understand that uh, a lot uh, uh, was omitted or just missed. And it is not a comfortable situation. Uh, I understand that because uh, you have uh, the idea of the world or the idea of global culture. And uh, when you admit this, uh, you just need uh, to find some space uh, for this new culture or new poetry. Uh, but uh, what uh, can I suggest is uh, to try to imagine a window or a door, uh, like any book. Uh, if you take a new book and you just open it, you feel that uh, you open a new big world to yourself. And uh, I just want people who open the uh, Ukrainian culture, but also Ukraine as a state and Ukraine as a big narrative uh, to themselves. Uh, imagine this uh, window, which is open to a big, uh, beautiful view. Uh, it might be new for them, uh, but uh, it is uh, something uh, that uh, gives you uh, that feeling of uh, creation. And uh, I believe that this uh, feeling of creation is an inspiring one. But uh, if we speak about the myths, um, probably uh, the worst myth uh, which is spread is uh, that uh, you have uh, nothing uh, to watch, uh, you have nothing to read, or you just have nothing to open here in Ukraine. It is not worth your attention. Um, it is difficult to uh, fight this myth, uh, but uh, if one uh, tries to just, uh, just a bit uh, change his mind, uh, I think that one uh, will be just impressed uh, in uh, uh, how big and how interesting world was uh, just omitted. And then one will ask uh, why this world uh, was omitted. So one of the things that I, uh, the, 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 the sort of great cultural exponent 
of Ukrainian culture right now is the president of Ukraine, who is a sudden celebrity in the West and has become, has been kind of on America's radar screen ever since the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, and we, we've kind of, uh, you know, had a kind of political eye on, on Ukraine uh, ever since President Zelensky was elected. But, um, uh, you know, in the last couple of months, he's become a sort of major cultural figure. Uh, the videos that he produced, uh, that he puts out every day, a lot of people watch them. He, they're incredibly well produced. That Victory Day uh, uh, speech was uh, uh, pretty amazing. And, and Netflix is now showing the uh, comic series that led uh, in which, you know, I, I free, a servant of the people, I don't know what it's called in Ukrainian. Um, I, I'm curious where in, in your judgment he fits into this picture. Is this just a, a culture, is this just a sort of cultural moment in which he, the, the president has, has uh, you know, become an international celebrity or is this, uh, or, or is there something in this that says something about the political, the development of the political culture or the development of the culture itself? Yeah. Um, speaking about President Zelensky, I just think that uh, he is a person uh, who took his responsibility and it is that very thing that uh, every Ukrainian, but not only Ukrainian, is uh, grateful for. Uh, but uh, uh, you told about his uh, speeches and uh, how they uh, influence uh, the general discourse and... Uh, if to comment about this, I think uh, that uh, Zelensky is really a very talented performer. Uh, he's a very hardworking person and he just uh, knows uh, how to say the words in the way they uh, will be heard. And uh, of course, I uh, enjoy uh, the way uh, his uh, team and he as a leader uh, work uh, on these speeches uh, to uh, provide uh, the world uh, with uh, those narratives which are important now uh, for Ukraine. But uh, uh, he does that thing that uh, may be done uh, by academia uh, in long, long years. Uh, he finds uh, very good metaphors. Uh, he is emotional, but also he is very strict and uh, his uh, words are well chosen. Uh, so I really, um, as a reader and as a person who works with Ukrainian culture, I enjoy watching his speeches uh, because I understand that uh, he delivers them uh, not uh, because he needs to deliver the speeches because he is a president of Ukraine. Uh, he makes them uh, because he wants to tell uh, the Ukrainian stories. And he uh, thinks about his uh, listeners and about people who watch him. And it is, uh, I think, the most important uh, for all the contemporary politicians. And we all uh, know uh, those uh, who even uh, misuse uh, their ability uh, to... Um, get to uh, people's consciousness and to get uh, to people's minds uh, but also we know those uh, who use uh, their talent uh, to spread uh, really um, correct and important ideas and uh, of course what president zelensky does is uh, very very important work at uh, the international frontier so one of the interesting features of Ukrainian culture that I've come to really appreciate over the last uh, couple of months has been the sort of mischievous, uh, almost trolling quality, uh, the pictures of tractors towing away tanks, the, uh, the 
uh, uh, Russian warship uh, Irina Khoi, um, uh, the 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 images that are kind of you know cheeky and meant to show a kind of defiance and a uh, but also always a sense of humor. And I'm wondering, you know, th- th- that is not a, um, I-, I think that, that, that kind of spirit in the, in the culture is new to a lot of people. It was certainly, you know, new to me. Um, I'm curious, uh, what are the, what are the roots of that? Where does it, where does it come from? And, and, why and 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 what where where does it kind of live in the history of Ukrainian culture? Uh, yeah, that's what I really love in Ukrainian culture, but in uh, Ukrainian spirit, I even say, is that uh, Ukrainians uh, are uh, very funny and very ironical. And uh, the roots are really deep uh, for that. And the roots are in uh, Ukrainian Baroque. It is also called Cossack Baroque. And if we speak about architecture and you want to uh, understand what is uh, the Ukrainian Baroque, uh, just Google or uh, imagine uh, uh, the Sofia Cathedral or uh, the Kiev uh, Lavrov Cathedrals. Uh, it's uh, uh, like it looks in architecture. It is uh, something uh, really impressive uh, on the one side, but also it has a very deep content. And uh, when we speak about the uh, Ukrainian irony, uh, it uh, is uh, something that uh, really helps Ukrainians uh, because um, even if we are in very complicated situations, we always uh, can find something ironical. And you know, my grandfather usually tells that uh, if uh, when I uh, get old, I need to keep the irony uh, and then I uh, won't uh, have any problems with my mind and I will remember everything. And uh, this irony is presented in all Ukrainian culture, in uh, Ukrainian literature, in Ukrainian arts, in Ukrainian uh, cinematography, but probably uh, the most vivid example is Ukrainian literature. And uh, if one reads Ukrainian literature after the collapse of Soviet Union, you will find the just uh, dark humorous novels uh, like the Moscoviad by Yuri Andruhovich, but also the field work in Ukrainian sex by Oksana Zabushka. And I mentioned Zhadan, but he is also uh, the thing that I love in him that uh, even if uh, he writes uh, about very difficult things, he ju- is just very, very funny. And uh, uh, these uh, laughable things just uh, help us to uh, deal uh, sometimes with uh, trauma, sometimes with stress, uh, but uh, they uh, become a characteristic uh, of uh, Ukrainian culture, uh, which is a very special one and with, which just uh, works for us. And uh, I feel that uh, irony is something very positive because it is also about the creation, uh, not about the destruction. Uh, you mentioned uh, all uh, that uh, uh, political jokes. Uh, but we just have uh, lots of them. And, uh, you know, uh, after um, very uh, difficult days, uh, a person can just open Twitter and uh, look through the new memes and it uh, helps you to deal with the situation. But it also helps you understand that uh, a lot of people laugh from the same thing that you are laughing now and they understand uh, the world in a quite similar way to you. And I really love the irony in Ukrainian culture, yeah. So one more question before I let you go. Um, uh, you know, for a lot of people in the West, there's a lot of confusion about language um, that is and again, I, I think this is something that the Russians have pretty successfully inculcated in Western ideas about Ukraine. But there was this sense that, you know, 
the Western part of Ukraine speaks Ukrainian and is kind of Ukrainian nationalist, and the Eastern part of Ukraine speaks Russian and is represented traditionally by the party of regions and is kind of pro-Russian. And the last few months have just blown that understanding of it away. Um, I'm interested in your uh, sense of uh, what makes somebody Ukrainian, uh, since it clearly isn't limited to the Ukrainian language, what is it that binds uh, Ukrainians together? What's, what is the, the definition of a Ukrainian as opposed to a Russian, irrespective of language? Uh, I think that uh, Ukrainian identity is very inclusive. Uh, we have a lot of national groups here in Ukraine, and uh, uh, we are open to uh, difference. Uh, now, uh, after uh, the full-scale invasion started, uh, we uh, see uh, very different people who join armed forces of Ukraine, and they do that uh, just without any connection uh, with language, and they did that uh, same in uh, 2014. That was very distinctive feature of the Ukrainian revolution of dignity. It also was not a revolution of language, but it was a revolution of culture. Uh, definitely, language is very important part of any national culture. Uh, but when I speak uh, about uh, that difference um, in our case between uh, Ukrainian culture and uh, Russian one, I mean uh, the difference uh, in political culture. Um, I mean the difference in the way of living. Uh, the difference uh, in uh, families, uh, the uh, difference in relationship in those families. And uh, where we see the uh, democratic approach uh, Ukrainians always had uh, inside uh, Ukraine, uh, we don't see the same in Russia. And uh, it is not a case of language. It's just a, a case of uh, the way of living, and it is different uh, here and uh, in Russia. Uh, but, uh, of course, when we speak now about a language, I advise everybody to think about Mariupol. Uh, we see uh, now uh, the catastrophe in Mariupol, uh, where Ukrainian defenders at uh, Azovstal are uh, defending uh, Ukrainian dignity and freedom and independence. And a lot of those people are Russian-speaking, uh, but it is not just a case. Uh, also, a lot of citizens of Mariupol are Russian-speaking. Uh, I was in Mariupol um, uh, last uh, summer. Uh, I took part at uh, a great uh, international culture festival uh, there. And I communicated with uh, lots of locals. And uh, many of them were speaking in Russian and some of them were speaking in Ukrainian, but it was just not a case because we were speaking about literature. And uh, I think that now uh, when everybody sees uh, what happened to Ukrainian East and especially uh, to Mariupol, uh, who, um, of course, were uh, much more Russian-speaking uh, than Western part of Ukraine, uh, one needs to understand uh, that uh, for Russia, the point is just not a language. Uh, but also what is important to understand is that Ukrainian language was banned just dozens of times within the occupation of Ukraine by Russia. And um, a lot of people in central Ukraine uh, were mostly Ukrainian speaking and also in eastern Ukraine before the 1933. The 1933 is a badly famous year because uh, there was a great famine of Ukraine organized by Stalin and uh, a lot of people just died. And uh, then uh, Russians came there and uh, settled there. And of course, those Russians were Russian speaking and uh, they had kids. And of course, they have ancestors that uh, influence uh, Ukrainians uh, here uh, just uh, till today. Uh, but uh, 
to sum up, I just want to say that uh, Ukrainian identity is uh, tightened uh, with uh, Ukrainian citizenship and Ukrainian culture. And uh, I think that in this way, uh, Ukrainian identity is very contemporary. We are going to leave it there. Bogdana Neborak, thank you so much for joining us uh, and for uh, inaugurating uh, this show. Um, I, we wish you well and, and uh, stay safe. Uh, thanks for having me, Ben. I'm really happy to join your show. We will be back tomorrow at the same time with uh, Walter Lech, who... Uh, uh, is uh, a Ukrainian in Queens, uh, New York, who has been doing the most extraordinary Twitter spaces. I think probably in the history of Twitter, it has been live 24-7 since the beginning of the war, doing military and situational analysis. Uh, that will be tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. And uh, until then, thank you all so much for joining us. Live from Ukraine is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Uh, you know, the engineering, I'm doing it myself because it's Twitter spaces, but it is produced and edited by folks at Goat Rodeo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>